Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation from me today is international best-selling author and former Canadian federal agent, Simon Gervais. Simon is a Montreal native and joined the Canadian military as a second lieutenant in 1997. In 2001, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police recruited him away, and he first served that agency as a drug investigator in Toronto, where he worked numerous international drug cases alongside the American DEA. In 2004, Simon joined a federal anti-terrorism unit based in the Ottawa region, which allowed him to deploy in several European and Middle Eastern countries. In 2009, he became a close protection specialist tasked with guarding foreign heads of state visiting Canada. The debut novel of Simon's first series, which featured counterterrorism agent Mike Walton, published in 2015 and includes five novels. His latest series about agent Pierce Hunt debuted last December, and book two is already set for delivery this coming September. Simon, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Gavin, for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm really excited about this this new series and this new character. Uh, what do you want readers who are new to you uh, to know about Hunt Them Down? Well, Hunt Them Down is an action-packed thriller um, that I use my years uh, with the RCMP and my work with the DEA to, to bring reality into my stories. Uh, so if your listeners are into action-packed series. Uh, I think Hunt Them Down and Pearson, my new protagonist, is exactly what you'll be looking for. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really, uh, really excited to, to, to get into this and to um, hear more about your, your experience, especially on the, on the drug side of things. I've had, um, had some experience down here in the southwest working uh, our end of you know the narcotics trafficking, and you know, so we're we're kind of supplying a lot of a lot of North America. And I'm really curious, um, you know, how much of our our supply is actually getting up into into Canada, where you're working the other side of the case. Um, is that pretty typical? Yes, um, but I think since you were in the Southwest, maybe it wasn't your mar- merchandise that reached. I I work in the Valley Field. Uh, office of the RCMP, which is very close to Cornwall and New York. Uh, So I was working mostly on the Indian Reserve, uh, where there was the border of Canada, the United States, and also two provincial states uh, that were all mixed together uh, under the jurisdiction of an Indian Reserve. So for us, it was really into interdicting uh, mostly the drugs coming from the south going to the north on the on your northeastern border. I know that the reality in British Columbia and Alberta uh, was very different because I guess your the merchandise you were working on was probably uh, traveling mm-hmm. from north to south using uh, the West Coast trails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing how, um, you know, we would catch one side of the case down here and somebody up in, you know, Montana or, you know, the far north would catch, you know, the 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 um the other side of it and you know there's um all of these uh all these drug trafficking networks are all interconnected and you know there's there's so much work to be done on that um and you know we'll never 
I feel like, you know, we'll never have the, the resources to really effectively stem the tide. Um, I think it's impossible to demand. Oh, absolutely. I think it's impossible for the public and even for us as police officers to expect to put a complete stop at it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, as, as long as going, there, there will be a demand for it, somebody's going gonna, gonna to make the produce. We just, we just try to do our best, save as many lives as we can, and to try to uh, not only interdict uh, the drugs, but also to make, understand, uh, to, to, to make people understand how dangerous they are. I don't know if you were aware of that, Gavin, but here in, um, in Canada, uh, our prime minister just uh, uh, make it legal for mar marijuana to be, mm -hmm. to be used. Uh, so this brings a whole level of new problems uh, in Canada, yes. and that's very, very unfortunate. Yeah, and uh, you know, with the, the recent um, you know, decriminalizations of, of marijuana in uh, Colorado and um, Washington, there, there have been a, a huge number of unintended consequences, you know, things that people didn't, didn't expect, and it wasn't part of the, the ad campaign to get the vote passed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's certainly the, the, the legalization or decriminalization it, itself hasn't been the answer that everyone expected. Um, you know, violence hasn't gone down. Um, house prices have skyrocketed. Retail space expenses have skyrocketed. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of things that change for the negative and I think caught people by, uh, by surprise, you know, including that. <laughs> There's not suddenly this massive pile of marijuana tax money sitting around that is fixing roads and buying books for schools. No, absolutely. And there's a lot of uh, negative consequences to that, bill. Mm -hmm. um, like you name a few, but my family and I, we have a ski cottage here in Mont-Tremblant, which is in the province of Quebec, about two hours north of where we live here in Ottawa. And um, since the legalization, uh, you can't walk in the pedestrian village mm -hmm. without having a whiff. Yes. of marijuana it's constant so the, few, the few people that are using it ruin it for everybody else yes and uh, secondary smoke is it's not because it's marijuana and it's not tobacco that it's less no nocive it's mm -hmm. as bad yeah and you know one of the when you drive through uh through central denver there's uh, a corridor on on broadway one of the main roads in in the older part of denver that is uh, referred to as the Green Mile or Reefer Row that you can just walk, you know, next door, walk across the street over the course of, I think, close to, you know, half a mile or a mile of pot shops. Mm -hmm. And oh, wow. there's, there is more, uh, there are more pot businesses and dispensaries in Denver proper than there are Starbucks and McDonald's combined. And wow. So much like that same experience, you can't drive down the freeway through Denver without smelling uh, raw pot from all the dispensary, or not the dispensaries, but the grow houses that are in the industrial areas. And you can't be in a lot of the, uh, a lot of the tourist areas, um, walk down the street without smelling pot almost constantly. It's, it's, it's more noticeable when you don't smell it, which is, which is <laughs> that, you know? Um, I mean, even as a guy who I, 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 I do like to drink a beer, um, and I also like to, to brew beer, but I, I wouldn't expect that if, uh, you know, I was 
going to open up a small distill or a small uh, brewery in my house that the neighbors should have to put up with the smell of the beer wart, you know, of the, <laughs> the stink of the brewing, but it's, I guess, part of the thing. I hear you 100% for me. It's all about common sense and these mm -hmm. laws, I just can't see the benefit right now. They certainly don't outweigh uh, the, the negative effect of these new rules. Yeah. And the, I guess my, my biggest hang up about the, about the whole thing in general is that no one, no one with a loud voice uh, and a public soapbox has, I think been really genuine, right? Everyone has an agenda. And so one side yells about how, you know, it's this moral issue and society is going to go in the toilet if we allow pot and the other side says that, you know, it's a plant with no negative side effects and it's all great and it's only going to be mm -hmm. wonderful. And neither of those things is true. Um, you know, so there's not a whole lot of, I think, honesty and candor in the public space on the issue. Everyone has an emotional investment. Um, and then once the tide flow opens, uh, a lot of folks are taking so much advantage of it that, like you said, it's ruining it for everybody. And, you know, it's, I think it's tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we have a more central uh, uh, di di dialogue here in Canada. Uh, we do see the middle ground a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think the opinions are not as extreme as in the United States, because I think I've seen, I've seen that in your politics as well. Yes. Um, yes. <clears throat> for the last, I won't even say two years, but maybe for the last eight years, it's, it yeah. seems to me that everybody is all for nothing on one side. Mm -hmm. And people can't seem to talk together and come to an agreement. Everybody talks about the other side being extreme. Yes. And I think it would be nice if we could meet somewhere in the middle. I'm a swing voters mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I support some idea of the left and I support some idea of the right. And I think I, I used to think that most people would agree with me on that, but it seems that especially in the United States, it's really one or the other. And I've heard family breaking up over these, uh, over these issues. I think it's very unfortunate. Yeah, it's it really concerns me about where our country is headed because you know as a constitutional republic, we we have to compromise. We have to be able to engage with one another. We have to have a dialogue, and we have to meet somewhere in the middle. And everyone, both both of our political parties, in my opinion, are running uh, their voters by fear and animosity. So, you know, they're encouraging Republicans or Democrats, they're both encouraging us to view our neighbors as enemies if they don't mm -hmm. agree with us. And that is so dangerous to me as a paradigm because we all have to live under the same laws. And, you know, I wouldn't want the extreme right in absolute power any more than I would want the extreme left. And I think that, you know, we have to we have to find some way to come back to something resembling common sense. It, it concerns me um, mm -hmm. because I don't think a lot of folks are on one end or the other. I think most of us have, uh, you know, like you said, some philosophies of the left and the right, um, you know, and uh, it would be nice if we could just talk to each other about why we think the things we do rather than just shouting about what we want to say. Yeah, absolutely. Now, after that massive detour, <laughs> your, uh, your first series that you wrote about Mike Walton has been out um, for about 
for um, uh, yeah, about four years now, at least in terms of publication yeah. dates. Uh, how mm -hmm. long have you actually known that character? How long has he been living inside you? That's funny. I start writing this novel in 2008, so about seven years before it got published. Um, at the time, I was working uh, with an anti-terrorism section, and I was traveling a lot. Uh, you know, I could be gone, I would say, about 13 to 15 days a month uh, overseas. Mm -hmm. And um, I was reading a lot in the planes. And at some point, I was reading some big-name authors. And I just couldn't connect with their action scenes. Uh, it yes. seems to me that at the time, uh, now it, it changed. There's a lot of new writers that have police and military background. But at the time, there were really few and far in between. And I thought, you know, these guys have never been shot at. They've never been in combat. Um, they yes. don't know what it is to arrest someone. The only thing they could, they, they could get their idea from was either movies or going to some kind of police academy uh, for mm -hmm. writers, which I think it's great, but it doesn't give you years of experience no. uh, like some people have. So I said, you know what, if, they guys, if these guys can be successful, maybe I could do a better job. But the mm -hmm. thing is, I never knew how difficult it, right, it, it was to be a, a writer. I mean, it, it's yes. easy to, to criticize somebody else's work. But when it's time to, to, to actually write the story, well, you have to give a, lit, a, a lot of uh, kudos to all mm -hmm. these writers that made it because it's extremely difficult. So anyway, all this to yes. say that it took me seven years to write my, my first novel and come up with Mike Walton and his wife, Lisa, which I honestly, like, I think a lot of writers did. I kind of based it on myself. The guy's a mm -hmm. former, a former infantry officer. He joined the RCMP, went into the uh, Earth team, which is like the equivalent of an American SWAT. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, his wife is a military doctor. This is exactly how I met my wife. We met at the officer's nest and one of the Canadian forces base. Um, so I kind of based it a little bit on us, you know, using part here and there of our own yes. stories. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that once I was done with the first draft, so I told you it took me about seven years to, to write or to get published, but the, the first five years, that's how long it took me to come up with the first draft. Because you and I both know that when we're, we're full-time police officers and we have families and our wives worked as well, uh, we don't get that much time to write. Um, no. So sometimes it could take me a month or two to get back to my story. Yes. Uh, all this to say that when I finished my, the first draft, I showed it to my dad, who used to be a reporter uh, for a newspaper called La Presse in Montreal, which is the biggest French newspaper in North America. And he's a pretty good writer, and he read it, and he told me after a week, you know, it's a good idea, but you'll never get published. Uh, you know, it, because it, it, it was all over the place, you know, you, yes. you, you would see my main protagonist for the first two cap chapters, then he would disappear for 15 of them and come back for one. I had no idea what I was doing, but the mm -hmm. story was good. Um, yes. So what I did, I, I hired a freelance editor to help me out. And I've learned so much in that six month I worked with him. It was mm -hmm. like an MFA in six months. Yes. It was really, really good change my story uh, you know of course i did all the heavy lifting but just for him to tell me what was wrong with the manuscript mm -hmm. uh helped me a whole lot um so at some point uh i went after that i went to thriller fest at one of the writers conference and i found my agent there 
and we signed, I think, 48 hours later. Uh, he, he loved the story. He loved wow. who I was as a writer. He loved my background. And then he was able to, uh, to get me a two-book deal with a, with a small publisher at the time uh, mm -hmm. that's based in Connecticut. So fortunately for me, uh, even though it's a super crowded market, uh, the Thin Black Line sold, I think, approximately, we're at 35,000 copies now for it. So it did wow. really, really well. Yes. Um, and it kind of, you know, it allowed me to become a, a full-time novelist about three years ago. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I heard once, and that's kind of a recurring theme of, of this podcast, is that it takes about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears mm -hmm. to become an overnight success. And, you know, I see a lot of commonality between the writing and publishing business and the music industry, where... You know, even after you get an agent, after you get a record deal, you're still going to play small clubs for a while, building a brand and an audience. And it's going to be a long time before you're, you know, selling out the Coliseum, you know, but oh, you can eventually get there through hard work, right? Oh, absolutely. And the first series, as much as I love it, it was not generating the, the, the sales I wanted to. It, mm -hmm. it did really well. And I think a lot of people would be happy with these numbers now. Um, but when I started my new series and it, it was picked up by uh, Thomas and Mercer and Hunt Them Down came out in January yes. 1st of this year, uh, it was an instant success. I think it was the second most downloaded book in the United States the week of Christmas and, and December. Wow, congratulations. Uh, just in pre-orders. Yeah. It, it was really great. I, you know, I couldn't be happier with it. And uh, within weeks, I had lots of emails about asking me you know how i did it that they've been trying to do it and how come it was an instant success i you know, <laughs> i did my best to 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 reply to a lot of people telling them you know i have another series that yes. i've been writing since 2008 so my overnight success took like 13 years kind of <laughs> um it, yes I, I think it's just the way it, it works for most of us but when people mm -hmm. see your name on a book that's at the top of the Amazon best-selling list, they, and they never seen you before, they think, well, it's his first book and it's doing well. How did he did that? Well, yes. there's a lot of work and sweat, like you said, behind it. And it's a super crowded market. It's really difficult to, uh, to, make, to make yourself heard among all mm -hmm. the math of our day. Now, one of the, um, one of the more vocal uh, Twitter cops um, in the last few weeks um, proclaimed that uh, that that us retired cops can only stay relevant as technical advisors and subject matter experts for about five years after we leave. Mm -hmm. um, what what do you do to keep up with case law, with changing technology, investigative tools um, to make your your thrillers uh, still relevant? Um, I read a lot and I think I still have probably like you do. I, I have a lot of friends um, that are still in the mm -hmm. service because I retired young. I joined the army. I was 17 years old. So I was able to retire in my late thirties. Um, so it makes it a little bit easier for me to, to keep in touch with, with friends that are still with the RCMP that are still with uh, some American agencies as well. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about cases because you're right. Um, that's something I noticed for me. It was not five years. It was like more like two years after I retired because <laughs> they used, they used yeah. to call me every time to comment on 
terrorism here in Canada, I was, you know, I did a lot of TV interviews and radio interviews with our big news network here in Canada. And I would say about a year and a half, two years ago, Eddie, they stopped calling. Um, probably because there, there were pe more and more people retiring that were more current uh, sure. and they had more knowledge than what I did. Um, so I, I guess your statement is true. Um, and for me, to, the trick to, to stay current in my book is just to read a lot. And I, I'm a news junkie as well. So I read a lot mm -hmm. of news. And for a, a fiction writer, it's easy to come up with new plots when you're a big reader and that you're, <laughs> you're a news junkie. Now, a lot of... Uh... A lot of American cop authors that I talk to um, kind of routinely offer advice to, to aspiring authors about developing relationships with, you know, active American cops or agents or investigators. Um, and for the, for the benefit of the audience, it, if you have a story that involves, you know, federal crimes or agents, uh, the, the FBI actually has folks available for technical advice. You can just go mm -hmm. dig around their website and they'll, they'll uh, right. eventually get around to helping you out. Um, keep in mind though, it's, it's, going to be a .gov though. If you punch in FBI.com, you might end up on something <laughs> that's going to be really sketchy and probably uh, give you all kinds of Chinese viruses. Um, but uh, is it, from, uh, from the Canadian perspective, somebody that, you know, was, was writing about um, crime in Canada, how can they go about developing that kind of relationship or at least a technical advice from, uh, from Canadian Mounties or, or Canadian agents such as yourself? I think it's going to be really difficult to do. We don't have these type of services, I think, in Canada. At least when I, when I left the RCMP, we didn't have an office like that that took care of public relation at that level. Because mm -hmm. um, I know the FBI, the ATF, and the DA has one because at Triller Fest, you know what Triller Fest is, yes. right? This is yep. the conference for Triller writers every July in New York City. Um, there's always a couple of agents that are there in a little office taking questions from attendees. Um, so I know there's an office for that, but in Canada, I don't think we do. I think that the best way for someone who would like to have some, some information would be to, to meet someone like me at a conference and, and, you know, get, get, get a friendly relationship going. Uh, I've been helping a lot of, a lot of authors in the last two years. Uh, I won't name them, but they're, they're mm -hmm. New York Times bestselling authors that I've been calling and asking me questions about bodyguarding, uh, protective services, yes. uh, explosive, these type of things. And I'm always, always happy to help uh, people that I know. But I think to, to answer these type of questions, I need to know who you are. Because um, I don't have the resources I used to have when I was in service or like the FBI have right now. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, somebody asked me a question about explosive. I won't, I won't, <laughs> I won't have all the answers, first of all, because I'm not, I'm not someone that's qualified I could refer him to a good friend of mine that's a, it's a bomb unit, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't give him access to these type of information if I don't already have a good relationship with that person. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, you can just take a, a box of donuts and a, a, a jug of coffee into, into the local police station and say, I'd like to know all your, all your best tactics and strategy secrets, please. I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It doesn't happen. I think I've, I've said that before in the interview. Is there's always a, the police academy for writers. I think that's going to that's gonna be able to help you a lot for people that would like to have these type of information. Or just attend Triller Fest. There's always a class that goes with the FBI, the DA, or the ATF a day or two prior to the main event. And I need to, you need to register for it. But 
he wants to learn about the ATF and other federal, uh, American federal agencies, I think it's the best way to learn as much as you can. It's registered for these type of conferences. Yeah. Now, one of, uh, one of my academy instructors, um, when I was going through that, it seems like a lifetime ago, uh, I was so much younger and faster. <laughs> um, <laughs> But one of my uh, one of my academy instructors uh, warned us that cop work is like is about ninety eight percent mundane paperwork and two percent sheer terror. And I, I think his math is probably a little bit off, but I can I can absolutely confirm the recruiters left out part uh, left out that part of the application video or recruiting video about the, all the paperwork and all the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my own experience, there's nothing in cop work that kind of exemplifies that more than dignitary protection work. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's like in the line of fire or Iron Man three or London falling, the, the fictional portrayal of that assignment, thankfully doesn't have a whole lot to do with the reality. Um, my concern with the recurring portrayals though, is that authors and technical advisors kind of slowly give away the keys to the kingdom. Um, how, how do you work in your own writing to balance the strategy and tactics of what's actually effective for protecting heads of state? versus how you're portrayed in the books? Um, lucky for me, my main characters aren't doing any protective duty right now. They are kind of lone wolf enforcer that work mm-hmm. of the book. Um, I wouldn't be comfortable um, doing anything uh, regarding protective services, at least mm-hmm. for now, because even though I would only use open sources material, it kind of... If you, because of what we used to do for a living, when mm-hmm. we put it on the page, people will take it as the holy grail type of thing. And I don't want to yes. confirm or deny any type of, of information. If they get it on the, on the web because other people did it, fine. But I just don't want to be the one who puts it out there. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you have the same, the same rules I do, but all my books need to be mm-hmm. reviewed by my former agency as well to make sure that um, there's, there's nothing out there that could endanger the lives of my former colleagues. Yeah, I, I have to be very cognizant of, uh, you know, I, I work to both keep the, um, if there's anything that's inspired by or related to a case I actually worked to keep the details of that different enough so that there's not, you know, a, a recognizable connection. And also so that, yeah, like you mentioned, there's no, there's no tactics strategy that are, that are actually used right now or in the capacity or with the limitations that I, I write about them because it's, I, I would be horrified to find out that, you know, somebody read one of my books um, and then took the thing I wrote about and then made it effective in committing a crime or harming somebody. That'd be terrible. The, the flip of the coin to that though, is sometimes we will get criticized. Like for example, in my first book, The Thin Black Line, there's a Mike, uh, he's an air marshal at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And um, when I, I, I did the first draft that I submitted to, uh, to, the, to the RCMP for review, um, I, ha- I actually used a real tactic in there. Of course, they, they, they put it down and they explained me why. And I, of course, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I put something that's completely false. And yes. I got readers <laughs> emailing me that that's not how it works in real life. And I'm kind of yeah. stuck in the middle and I say, well, yes. yeah, I know, but it, I just can't put the, the truth or it's going to bet it's going to get blacked out. So it, we're mm-hmm. kind of between, stuck between a rock and a hard place when we write these things. Yes. Um, 
One of the uh, other things that I, I kind of run up against in my own writing is, you know, kind of balancing the realities of the of our criminal justice system. And uh, having spoken with several other uh, thriller and espionage authors in the last few months about the uh, the similarities between the espionage, uh, the spy genre, and, and police um, mysteries or, or uh, police procedurals, your personal experience looks to me like you pretty much have a foot solidly planted in both of those worlds, which I think makes you a very unique among authors. Uh, you've actually had the experience of pursuing terror suspects while staying within the bounds of the legal system while, you know, kind of from the outside. Um, it would seem to have little in common with, you know, a, a typical um, CIA agent with no rules of engagement or, or very few rules of engagement as they're fictionally portrayed, right? Um, so how how do you work in your writing to keep Mike... Uh, and, uh, and and Pierce within the legal bounds, or do you really worry about that very much? I don't really worry about that very much because I think one of the reason I, I, I write and I create that type of series, especially in the first series, uh, the Mike Walton and Lisa Walton series, is that one of the things that was very difficult for me as a federal agent was to always play by the rules when the criminals don't play by the rules. And yes. I kind of hope at some point that there was an agency that wouldn't play by the rules that could catch the bad guys mm -hmm. uh, a little bit easier yes. than us always <laughs> waiting yeah. for a warrant when we know, you know, they're, they're, they should be arrested. Um, it, it was something that we, we all struggle with uh, in yes. the service. Um, so I don't really worry about this. Uh, you're, you're, you're right. I'm, in my career, I've always played by the rule. Even though I was with um, uh, covert units, I've never done anything that was outside the law or anything that resembled even a little to Jack Bowers. And we always play by the right. rule, respect the, the laws. But it didn't mean that in my mind, I wasn't hoping that somebody could do what we weren't by law able to do. Um, that's why I kind of write these, these novels. And Mike and Lisa Walton, they don't really care about rules. They are kind of giving free reign about what they can do to stop the terrorists or the bad guys, the villains, and all, and all these books. Um, yeah. So the, uh, my, my follow-on to that then is actually about your, your writing process. Um, espionage thrillers, just like murder mysteries and police procedurals need a, a specific crime or intent, uh, a group of bad guys, and uh, what I like to call a merry union of flawed saviors um, who are willing <laughs> to risk themselves for people they've never met. Uh, when you're putting your stories together, do you typically start or, or first inspired by the crime and the criminals, the terrorists, and what you want them to try to get away with, or are you first more inspired by the heroes and what you want to see them accomplish? Uh, it's, a, it's a super good question because on my first series, I was really more plot oriented in a way that I wanted, I knew who the villain was. I knew exactly uh, the arc that I was going to follow. And it was after that creating good characters. Having said that, in the second series, my Pearson series, um, I really created my characters first. I wanted to make it about personal relationship between a father and a daughter. Um, mm -hmm. And it, all the books started with that. Now his daughter is taking away from him by mistake, and he just he just can't live with himself. He needs to go get her. So it's all mm -hmm. about 
there's a lot of action, but it's really about the relationship between a, a, a father and a daughter. Wow. Now, what would you like readers to take most away from, from your writing and your work? I think that, I think that my books, I have to be honest with the type of books that I write. My, my books will never be, uh, uh, I will never be called on the Oprah Winfrey show because my book, <laughs> they, don't, they don't change the world. They won't change yeah. you as a person. But what I can promise you is that they will give you six to eight hours of pure entertainment. They're beach read, they're fun to read. And I, um, you know, I, I've been looking at the reviews before the interview on Hunt Them Down. We're close to a thousand reviews now on Amazon and only wow. four months. And it has an average of 4.5 out of five. And I'm just, I'm reading it. And people, they, they honestly, I know it's a cliche, but they say they can't put the book down just because... Mm -hmm. Every chapter is hand by a mini cliffhanger. Um, and that's what I try to do. Um, so I think that if you start with Hunt Them Down, I think that people will automatically buy the next one after that. Um, you know, I try to keep people entertained as much as I can. And I promise you that my books, you won't waste your time reading them. Now, since you bring up the, the, the review process, um, uh, Harlan Coben and I talked uh, a few weeks ago, and he was um, – we were talking about the, the how authors can become obsessed with their Amazon ranking and their reviews and the number of reviews and all those things where, you know, when he uh, – his theory was that he's successful today because this didn't exist when he first got published or he would have been obsessed with it and wouldn't have spent as much time writing. Um, but uh, I, I was just – Think of that conversation and i wanted to ask do you remember your first one-star review uh i don't i don't remember my one-star review that, that's um, fantastic <laughs> I, I really don't um the um what the, no i i i'm i am sure i ha i had plenty of one-star reviews but i don't remember them i used to read all my reviews with the mm -hmm. other series Yes. Um, because it was my first book and I think we're close to probably about 400 and something now on that, on that first book. But at some point you can't read them all. Yes. Um, so I started probably the first 50, I read them all cause it was my first book. And then you start looking, you know, once, uh, once every hour to maybe once a week. And at the end, you're more like once a month. Um, I have to admit that with my new series, Hunt Them Down, because it, it had such a big promotion from my publisher, uh, I kind of looked uh, multiple times a day when it came out because it was so exciting for me to be the second most downloaded book in the, in the United States. It was like, wow, this is truly a dream come true for me. It's, yes. it's, it was really, really amazing. But now at close to a thousand reviews between the UK and the US, I can't, I can't possibly read them all. But I did a few today, like before we talk, I just wanted to see, you know, how it was. Mm -hmm. And I read like probably 20 of them. Um, but I don't get uh, obsessed about it as much as probably I used to be when my first book came out. Uh, do you have a, a favorite uh, fictional detective that you read or a favorite crime show that you watch? Um, I kind of like uh, one of my friends. I don't know if you know Jack Carr. He's uh, a writer. Yeah. He wrote I, the terminal list yep. and he's truly, he's a friend of mine. And he introduced me to a show called seal on TV. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And uh, what I love about that show is that uh, they're all former service members that are helping behind the scenes to get mm -hmm. the tactics right, to get the equipment right. And uh, my wife and I started watching that show and it's just amazing. It's really, really good. So yes. I would say that's my favorite show. As my favorite books, um, unfortunately, I don't have that much time to read for pleasure now. I have mm -hmm. so many blurbs. Uh, requests that oh, yeah. uh, I usually go, my agents send me a bunch of them. Uh, friends that I met at conference sent me their books to read as well. Um, so this is pretty much what I do, but I would suggest like people looking for good reads. I would say uh, Mark Graney, who's also a good friend of mm -hmm. mine is, is fabulous. Jack Carr is mind blowing good. It was the best debut of 2018 for sure. Um, yes. So there's a lot of great authors out there. You just need to uh, to look for them. But there's, uh, yeah, there there there's a lot of options. So uh, keeping the, the the last answer in mind, I run everyone through this this little gauntlet toward the end here, Simon. But God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator or team would you want working the case? Would you want the gray man to to try to solve your murder? <laughs> <laughs> Never thought about that, honestly. Um, have plenty of good friends still in the service that I, I think would do a, a good job. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I would have to get back to you on this. <laughs> okay. We'll put you down for real-life investigators as the preference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have a, a much better chance of a, a, a real outcome for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you making time to come on the show, Simon. I'm hoping that we can get our schedules uh, aligned for you to come back this fall to talk about the, the next Pierce Hunt novel, which, uh, for the benefit of the audience, is titled Train to Hunt and is currently up on uh, on Amazon.com as a pre-order. Absolutely. I, I'd, I'd love that. It's a fantastic read, and it brings Pearson into Venezuela and Afghanistan this time. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's already worth the read. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international best-selling author and former counterterrorism agent Simon Gervais. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. <laughs>